0: Welcome. welcome, From Alpha, From Alpha to, Omega. to Omega.
1: Hello, and welcome to the 42nd episode of From Alpha to Omega. Today is Sunday, the 24th of November, 2013, and I'm your host, Tom O'Brien. This week's show has been brought to you by the generous donations of Svetka V. and Colin G. You too can help keep the shows flowing by clicking on the donate button on the podcast website. You can also follow the show on Twitter or over on Facebook. This week, our guest is Dan Kervik. By day, Dan works in the book publishing industry, but by night is an independent scholar specialising in the work of the British philosopher David Hume and a regular blogger on progressive and egalitarian economics over on neweconomicperspectives.org. We discuss the institutional workings of the banking system, how reserves really function, bubble blowing and the logic of quantitative easing, military Keynesianism and the role of capital flows. In the modern economy. So Dan, how did you end up getting involved in the arcane world of monetary economics? <laughs> That's an interesting question.
2: I think just like many people in 2008 and 2009 when the the US and then the global economy were, were unraveling, uh, I had a, a strong desire to figure out what was going on and my, my academic background was in philosophy, I really, I had taken uh, some economics as an undergraduate but really uh, hadn't focused much on it and I was uh, at the time working not as an academic but in the business world and I could see the impact of the global crisis on things in my own business and ended up you know tending to disagree with a lot of what I was reading in the paper and that drew me more and more into reading economists and various types of economists and what they were saying. And, and eventually it, it drew me toward people like Hyman Minsky and the Levy Center folks and uh, folks who write on MMT, who are my fellow bloggers now at New Economic Perspectives. just as a kind of natural evolution driven by my own curiosity and my own outrage or (laughs) irritation. uh, The same things I think most people have been uh, feeling since 2008.
1: What is it about the institutional workings of the banking system that you think is so important?
2: Well, uh, I've come to feel that there's a lot of... uh, misunderstanding about the central banking system, at least in the, in the United States, I think probably globally as well. Uh, and that misunderstanding, I think has two important implications for public response to the crisis. One is uh, the side of things where, where people put way too much faith in the power of monetary policy and uh, central bank policy, especially. There are a lot of uh, kind of textbook pictures of the way central banks work which picture them as just kind of pumping money into and out of the economy and therefore being able to have a very strong impact on aggregate demand in a direct way. And I think those folks are not paying nearly as much attention to the institutional structure of, of the monetary system and central banking and, and the constraints on it as they should. The other side of things that I am concerned about are the huge number of, of sort of conspiracy theories about the central bank Some of those are, you know, there's merit in them. Uh, People certainly should be interested in the structure of of financial capitalism and how it all operates. But I think if you look at at people in the, the libertarian camp, for example, some of the Ron Paul people and others in that area, I think they just get their facts consistently wrong about how the monetary system works and the central banking system works, and they also tend to look for deep, dark conspiracies when the actual facts are readily available. If you go to the uh, Federal Reserve website, there really is a tremendous amount of information there about how the central bank functions, about the central bank's balance sheet, about its governance structure. And it's mostly accurate. The Fed uh, these days tries to do much more communication than they used to. And uh, so I guess th- those have been the two main areas of my focus. One, not overestimating the central bank, which leads people to ignore fiscal policy and the need for activist government. And on the other hand, not falling into these dark conspiracy theories about, you know, going back to the Rothschilds or whatever that people uh, look
1: for to
2: understand the current central banking situation.
1: So, Dan, how do reserves and banks work, and, and what are they made up of?
2: In the U.S. system, and in most uh, central banking systems that function in the same way, reserves really are come in, in two types. There are the deposits that banks have at the central bank itself. So just as you and I have, have checking and savings accounts at our banks, the banks, in turn, have accounts at the Federal Reserve. And they have money in those accounts and the money in those accounts is classified as part of their total reserves. The other portion of reserves are whatever amount of physical currency banks have in their vaults. In order to serve their uh, depositors needs, banks uh, constantly have to provide cash, right, through ATM machines and over the counter. And uh, they get that cash by usually by buying it using their reserve account. So. If a, a bank says, oh, we need, uh, you know, another million dollars in in cash, they pay the Fed out of their reserve account and the Fed sends them some cash and they put it in their vault. As long as it stays in the bank vault, it's part of the bank's total reserves. Both of those forms of money are liabilities of the Fed and the U.S. government. Right? So you can think of reserves as the liabilities of the U.S. government that the banks themselves hold in cash form the ones that don't earn interest they also have uh, government securities which earn interest and have a maturity you know they mature in the future but dollars uh, don't they don't earn interest they don't mature you just have them at their face value they're held either in uh, as physical currency in vaults or in deposit accounts
1: so what happens to bank reserves when for example i go in and get a loan from a bank
2: well immediately nothing would happen so if you go into a bank and and uh, say ask for a ten thousand dollar loan the bank will create a a deposit account for you if you don't have one already and credit that account with ten thousand dollars and in addition to that you make promise to the bank so you sign a promissory note you say i will pay you ten thousand dollars by such and such a day with such and such interest payments along the way. So at that point, nothing has happened to bank reserves. Now, uh, something could happen to the bank reserves. Subsequently, uh, you might say, I don't want this $10,000 all in account. I need $5,000 in cash. At that point, the uh, bank would reduce your deposit account by $5,000 and hand you $5,000 in cash. And that cash now is has been subtracted from total bank reserves. But the thing is, you're probably going to go right out and spend that cash. That's why you wanted it. You don't want to put it under your mattress. You you took the loan for some purpose. Uh, So you'll you'll spend it at various businesses. And then those businesses will deposit it right back with their banks again. And so it will go back into the bank reserve system. Another thing that can happen with bank reserves is that they move from bank to bank as a result of the loan. So you have your $10,000 deposit account. And let's say you go out and buy a $2,000 worth of cement and the company you buy the cement from, their bank account is at a different bank than the one you borrowed from. Well, you give that company a check and that company deposits the check in their bank. And then their bank presents that check to the bank that you have your loan at. And as a result, your bank has to transfer $2,000 to the other bank so that they have the money to make good on your uh, on the new deposit they created for the cement company to do that for one bank to pay another they use in the US it's called the fed wire system primarily there has to be an interbank payment so they get the fed to transfer $2000 from the first bank's account to the second bank's account there are other ways of doing the payment but it all depends on the fed's supervision of the payment system and ultimately on the fed wire system for for domestic transactions
1: what happens if a bank doesn't have enough reserves to make all the payments required say on a given day
2: it has several recourses so one one thing it could do is borrow additional reserves from other banks so all the banks in the us system uh, have access to to an interbank market called the Fed funds market and they can get an overnight loan from other banks. The Fed funds rate is effectively set by the Federal Reserve by the central bank. Right now its official rate I guess is a quarter of one percent, but it keeps floating way down below that for various reasons. Uh, so it's it's near zero. It's very very low right now. but they can borrow the reserves from other banks in the Fed system. They could also sell government securities. So all of the banks have uh, various kinds of financial assets on hand. And some of those are treasury bonds, you know, issued by the U.S. government. And as a last resort, it can borrow from the discount window. That is, it can borrow directly from the Fed. When it does that, it pays a penalty. It has to pay more for the reserves than it would do by using one of those first two methods. And the Fed these days tends to discourage that. Some people think they should go back to relying on the discount window more, uh, direct loans from the Fed. But the the first options are to uh, sort of acquire reserves by looking for excess reserves in the systems held by other banks and borrowing them. It made it sound very complicated, but the bottom line here is that Unless there's a huge systemic crisis, banks are not really constrained by reserves. They do have to watch the cost of acquiring new reserves, and they have liquidity managers whose job it is to do that. But if they're shorter reserves, they just get more, and they, they get them from their fellow banks or from the U.S. government or from the Fed.
1: These reserves then act as a kind of a core layer underpinning the entire edifice of deposits, loans and transactions in the banking system. And they're constantly shifting from bank to bank and whirring and whizzing along. And they keep the engine of the entire system ticking over. Is that the way to think of them?
2: Yeah, I think so. And, and I think one of the really harmful pieces of language here, is something that really, really confuses people is just the fact that they're so-called reserves, Calling them reserves makes it sound like it's some sort of backup money that the banks have. Uh, But that's not really the way to think of it. I think it would be better if we just called them clearing balances, payment balances, payment assets, something of that kind. It's really just the fact that just as you and I, to carry on our everyday economic business, have to have some money in the bank and have to be able to make payments, banks also to be able to carry on their business have to have money in the bank and the bank they use is the federal reserve they have to have some of the federal reserve's money to do their business reserve accounts are just banks deposit accounts at the fed that they use for paying each other for doing business with other banks underneath the whole so-called real economy of households and non-banking firms there's a banking sector that is holding the deposits of all of those households and firms and transacting their payments. And for the banking sector to work, different banks have to be able to pay each other. And that's what reserves are for.
1: And so the orthodox understanding is that banks lend out of the reserves. But in reality, this is not the case. They lend anyway and may increase or decrease the reserves as needed.
2: That's right. You still see this among economists, many of whom for reasons I cannot fathom, (laughs) they have a real uh, resistance to learning about the details of institutions and institutional mechanisms and love to look at things from this kind of uh, Olympian splendor (laughs) based on uh, theoretical models rather than looking at the guts of, of how the system works. Banks, when they make loans, Don't lend out the reserves for the most part. And so you're not going to see reserves falling if bank lending is picking up. You hear this, this mistake constantly these days. People will look at the high level of excess reserves in the banking system and say, well, why aren't these banks lending? You know, what, why are they holding on to all these reserves? Well, if they did lend more and if, if bank lending did increase more, those aggregate reserves wouldn't disappear or somehow get out into the economy. They would just move from bank to bank. So the aggregate uh, level of reserves would stay the same. In fact, typically in a a more normally functioning economy than we have now, what you would expect to see if bank lending increased was an increase in reserves because as the banks increase their liabilities to households and firms to their customers, they have to acquire more payment assets to be able to handle all those liabilities. And they would do so, you know, relying on the uh, system that the central bank set up.
1: So the more that they've lent out, the bigger the float is that they need to keep things operating smoothly.
2: Yeah, exactly. If suppose um, the banking sector as a whole had to make in, in some imaginary country uh, $1 trillion in daily payments, given the current level Of deposit liabilities they have and the amount of business that their depositors tend to do every day. Well, if the economy doubled in size so that the people were holding uh, twice as many deposits, uh, they would be making roughly twice as many payments and reserves would grow accordingly. The Federal Reserve would accommodate that growth in the economy by supplying more payment assets to the banking system.
1: One of the first Pointers to the 2008 crisis was a spike in rates like the LIBOR rate, which is one of these interbank lending rates. This shows the importance of the reserve system for the functioning of the economy.
2: That's right, for the smooth functioning of, of interbank payments. What was happening in that case, assets were losing value, right? In the, in the global economy as, as a whole, banks and financial institutions were discovering that assets that they thought had a particular value, had a value much lower than that, and therefore became much less liquid. Nobody wanted to buy that stuff anymore. You know, the term up was toxic assets. That means that the the constant transactions of banks of selling various kinds of financial assets for cash was freezing up, and that was putting a lot of pressure on the demand for cash assets and raising the price for cash assets.
1: How would you describe the current orthodox understanding of the banking and the central banking system?
2: Well, that's interesting. You know, one thing uh, Krugman wrote about recently, and that and that appears to be very common among uh, mainstream uh, macroeconomists, is this idea of the banking system as intermediaries. Uh, the picture there is that there are people with money, and uh, they want to lend it, and there are other people who want to borrow. And the banks play an intermediary role in that aspect of the economy. The banks take deposits from those who are willing to lend them to the bank in exchange for a rate of interest. And then the banks make loans to people who are looking to borrow. And again, in exchange for those borrowers promises to repay with interest. And so I think that's the basic picture. I've seen that it goes back to Tobin. Also, a lot of people are attracted to Milton Friedman's views about central banking and monetary policy. And all of those pictures or those views tend to see the central bank as simply pumping money into the economy. In the recent discussions of quantitative easing, if you, if you read the uh, accounts in the press, people think of quantitative easing as simply the Fed giving money to people and pumping it out into the economy, so to speak. But quantitative easing doesn't get pumped out into the real economy. Uh, Quantitative easing consists mainly in the Fed buying financial assets from other financial institutions. And so even though it does inject new dollars into the financial sector, it also extracts financial assets at the same time and all of the payments that are associated with those financial assets. So it's really a little bit of a wash. It adds some liquidity to the system, but in the long run, it it drains about as much as it adds. And as a result, the, this sort of orthodox picture that sees the central bank as, as pumping money into the economy or draining money from the economy uh, really takes a, too crude a look at what's going on. The The Fed doesn't interact with the broader economy directly. It interacts with the economy through the financial sector and through the Federal Reserve system, which consists of the Federal Reserve member banks.
1: So when the Fed goes into the market to buy these assets like government bonds or mortgage backed securities, they're buying them both from the financial institutions and from just normal individuals or corporations in the market.
0: Well,
2: I think that's true. They do it through an auction process, but most of the, the people who are selling these assets are extremely large financial corporations who are the, the Fed's primary dealers. To the extent that that smaller individuals and companies are involved in that, it's usually in a secondary role because they transact business with these larger financial institutions. So yes, but even if we looked at it at the level of a single individual, so suppose you happen to be, uh, for whatever reason, owned a, a mortgage-backed security and you sold it to the Fed as part of a quantitative easing program. Well, that mortgage-backed security is a financial asset that has a, a cash flow attached to it. Basically, it's a, it's a way that the home lending industry packages a group of mortgages into a single security, which they then sell on. And whoever owns that security is then entitled to a portion of the cash flow that's generated by mortgage payments. So if you sell that to the Fed, uh, what do you get? You get some money. You get some money right up front, but you no longer have the mortgage-backed security. And the cash flow that is going from mortgages to the former owners of those securities now goes to the Fed. Why would the Fed do this? Well, because they, they may be of the opinion that what the financial sector needs or what the business world needs is more cash up front and that the long term cash flows from these securities aren't as important. But, you know, this, these programs have been going on for a long time and and recent research shows that they've had very little impact. And so I think if people understood that these quantitative easing programs were swaps of one financial asset for another, cash for another financial asset, they wouldn't be pulling their hair out so much about these hyperinflation fears that they always have. They they tend to think of it as the Fed just pumping tens of billions of dollars into the economy without anything coming out uh, as a result. And that's just not true.
1: In this kind of fictional scenario where I sell them my mortgage-backed security, say for $100 million, and the Fed gives me the cash what what happens to this cash once it comes into my hands? Say if I lodge it to a bank, does that end up then filling up the reserves in the bank where I where I put it?
2: That's interesting, and I and I have to say I'm I'm not sure about that. I read a lot of debates about you know what is happening to the cash assets that are flowing into the financial sector. As you mentioned, I think primarily they are filling up bank reserves. What we've seen since two thousand eight is that bank reserves have grown tremendously. Banks are swimming in excess reserves right now, reserves way beyond the requirements that the Fed imposes on them they can make purchases with those reserves of of other kinds of assets. And some people suggest that that's what's happening, that these are being used to fund purchases of more mortgage-backed securities, more stocks and bonds. And so we have seen a stock market that is uh, surging. There was a boost in home lending for a while, although that seems to have cooled off now that there's a lot of talk about the Fed tapering, and so people seem to be confused about what that's going to mean exactly, and that seems to raise long-term interest rates and suppress some home lending. But I do want to emphasize that the whether or not the banks have all these excess reserves really doesn't have a lot to do with bank lending. Banks don't need to acquire reserves first before lending. They can extend their lending pretty much whenever they want they can then acquire the reserves afterward. In the current conditions, the cost of added reserves is extremely small because the Fed funds rate is extremely low, close to zero. So it's not as though pumping these reserves into the banking system somehow makes banks lend more. It does. I don't think that that has a uh, much of a
1: role. Does the effect of QE on, on increasing banking reserves help banks and financial institutions? to weather maybe a future financial storm can can they help prevent runs on banks is this in the thinking at all of the fed
2: i don't think that that's a big part of the fed's thinking uh For one thing, in the U.S., and now I I should say that this is, I I tend to talk a lot about the U.S. system, and I I may be wrong about how other central banking system works, but in the U.S., there is deposit insurance. Uh, Deposits up to $250,000 are guaranteed by the FDIC. And with all the calamity in 2008, we did not have a run on the central banking system. You could say that there was a kind of run in the shadow banking system in the larger universe of insurance companies and, and bank-like institutions that provide financing and provide banking-like services for other corporations and for the other financial institutions. But the commercial banking system itself and ordinary deposits, there was no run on those. The FDIC system worked there. That played the role it was supposed to play. I, I don't think that that's what's going on with the Fed's purchases. Some people have claimed that what the Fed is really doing is just continuing its bailout by other means. Their view is that a lot of the securities that the Fed is buying are toxic, you know, garbage securities that are they're worthless and the fed is just assisting the uh, banking sector by taking them off their books. So if you have a mortgage backed security and it's it's worthless, maybe you can sell it to the fed for more than it's worth and now you uh, have eliminated some risk on your balance sheet and a potential future loss and you have some cash. I don't think that that is what is going on at this point because what we see is that the Fed has very high earnings lately from it's what's called the Soma portfolio, the system open market portfolio. And so. That means that the securities that the Fed is buying are actually making money for the Fed. And that suggests to me that it isn't a case where the Fed is taking toxic assets off the books. So I think what the the Fed was primarily trying to do is lower long-term interest rates to stimulate the housing market and also to, to boost asset prices across the board, cause what's called a wealth effect. In the U.S., we had a huge negative wealth effect in 2008 and 2009. As I'm sure you're aware, this also happened across the world because so much of the world was invested in the housing market. People saw their retirement assets disappearing. The the funds they were invested in suddenly reported to them that they had lost 50 percent of their value or or somewhere in that ballpark. And that's a pretty scary thing for people. And it makes them uh, less willing to spend and less willing to invest. And had a huge effect on the economy. And I think what the Fed is trying to do is sort of reverse that by boosting asset prices. If you're invested in a, in a retirement fund that is in turn invested in the stock market and the mortgage market, and they can boost prices across the board there, then your retirement fund suddenly starts to make more money. You start to feel like, oh, the economy is getting better. I can go out and spend again. And I, I think that, that that's probably what's driving the Fed's thinking.
1: So are they, in effect, perhaps blowing another bubble like they did previously?
2: That is a great question. And I've tried to understand what goes on in the banking system, but I am not able to make predictions. But I think a lot of people are worried about that, that the stock market has been doing very well the past few years, despite the fact that the economy, the real economy, is growing very slowly. And despite the fact that there's massive unemployment and people have wondered uh where these stock valuations are coming from and uh there is a little bit of a, a i think a justifiable fear uh that there could be a bubble blowing and that eventually when there are bubbles which can you know which consists of people temporarily placing values on things that aren't supported by the fundamentals those bubbles eventually burst and have a cascading effect throughout the economy uh so i think that's a that's a serious Concern. I don't like to to make predictions of that kind because I I think it's bad to either sort of spread optimism or spread pessimism. The financial sector people are always doing that. They're always talking their book one way or another. But, you know, I'm not going to tell people, oh, there's a huge bubble coming or that, uh, no, everything's fine.
1: What is the role of equity in banking then? How does this interact with reserves?
2: Yeah, that that's interesting. I mean, that's recently there's been a lot of talk about that because the mainstream opinion, and in so, I think in some way everybody is on board with this to some degree or other. They just disagree with how effective it will be. Is to increase capital requirements, and or you could also say equity. And you know, the bank's equity, their net worth for an individual banking institution, is just their assets minus their liabilities right? So banks have various kinds of assets. They have cash, what we've been talking about, the reserves. They have all kinds of securities that they own. And then they have loans, right? All of the promissory notes of all those borrowers. Some are home loans, some are other kinds of business loans, some are household loans. Uh, so those are the bank's assets. The banks have lots of debts and you can subtract the debts from the uh, assets. That's the net worth of the company. Now it's all based on accounting, right? So The calculation of the company's equity depends on the fact that they're measuring the assets and the liabilities uh, accurately. And there are all sorts of different systems for doing that. And you can get very different results. And so part of the financial regulation banks is determining how they do measure their assets. The aim of regulators recently has been to try to get banks to increase their capital. uh, So they want stronger capital requirements and all that means is that that the balance of assets over liabilities is effectively higher right? and that the quality of the assets is higher as well now that is a kind of buffer because the idea is supposed to be that if an individual bank begins to lose a lot of money their creditors get paid and so it doesn't the failure of that one bank doesn't spread throughout the financial sector and infect it but their stockholders lose money. Uh, because they had this buffer of equity, as their asset valuations fall, it's all subtracted from the amount owed to the stockholders. Okay? And so the stockholders take a hit, but the creditors still get paid, and it's supposed to limit the systemic impact of bank failures. Shareholders are they're in what's called the first loss position. Only afterward, If the bank begins to go into negative equity, would the creditors begin to be hit? And at that point in the regulatory structure, the central bank is supposed to step in and the various insurance agencies are supposed to step in to begin to manage the bank directly and maybe even take it over and resolve it.
1: What is the role then of capital flows and how does it interact with the banking system? In in the Irish scenario, we were told about how there was a massive flood of German money to the Irish banks funding the expansion. Why would banks need foreign capital flows like this to fund expansion when they can create their own money and get reserves from their own central bank?
2: Well, here's a here's a great example. Of, and as I mentioned earlier, I tend to talk about the U.S. system, but the European system is completely different. The European nations who are in the Eurozone do have their own, you know, what they call their central bank. Each nation has its own central bank. But those central banks are really part of a larger network governed by the European Central Bank. So there's only one central bank, really, in Europe. uh, That is only one bank that has the ability to issue the most fundamental kind of payment asset and liability. And that's the ECB. Each of the national central banks does issue money but it only does that in executing a monetary policy that's been established by the ECB, and so it's heavily regulated. So in comparing Europe to the U.S. system, it's a more accurate picture to think of each of the European countries as similar to U.S. states. If you imagine each U.S. state had its own branch of the Federal Reserve System, we don't have that we have 12 regional reserve banks but if you imagine each u.s state had its own branch then that would be something like the ecb system in that case at least from the financial point of view the banking point of view europe runs like a single country right if the uh, irish central bank can't just manufacture liquidity outside of ECB monetary policy for Irish banks and pump it into Irish banks. It does have to acquire deposits from outside the country or acquire liquidity from outside the country in some way, capital investment from outside the country, if it's in need of it. Unfortunately, in the ECB system, while the financial sector is like one country, the fiscal policies are all separate and the banking system is not sufficiently connected with fiscal authority for those things to operate in harmony. In the U.S., not only can the central bank provide liquidity throughout the system, but the U.S. government can spend, it can expand its deficit and sell treasury bonds, which the central bank can then buy, in effect providing central bank funding for fiscal expansion. And in Europe, that's a very hard thing to do. And the Germans seem to be the one who who called the tune there. And, and there's been throughout Europe this huge fiscal contraction during
1: the crisis, which has
2: made the, the European Depression very profound.
1: In the Irish example, we had these banks that were lending crazy amounts. And in order, because they were increasing their book of loans, they needed more reserves and they had to go find them somewhere. And they got them from Germany where there was an excess of capital, essentially.
0: Yes,
2: Germany is a saving country, right? They, they run surpluses and they therefore get capital excesses and then they loan those out throughout Europe and they were funding European expansion via credit, right? So a lot of European nations were Net debtors, and I'm not talking about the, the governments, the governments had deficits, but that wasn't really the issue. It was private sector debt in Europe had grown very large and the debt is owned to you know, various creditors throughout Europe. But I guess Germany, I don't want to single out Germany. Germany is, the, is probably the,
1: the, the core of all that, but, but other nations are involved as well. What does this understanding of the way the banking system operates then mean for the politics of the economy? How does the Federal Reserve or the central banking system and the politics interact?
2: Well, I think there are a few lessons that need to be taken. One one is that the expansion of lending, the growth of the supply of money is driven mainly by demand in the economy. It's not something that's dictated from the central bank. The central bank can supply additional reserves to its member banks, but that doesn't make those member banks loan. Member banks' loaning decisions are still primarily based on their assessment of the health of the economy and whether they can make money by loaning. And the way they can make money by loaning is if the economy is growing and there's a lot of demand, both for consumption and fixed investment for the purchase of both consumption products and and capital products. It's all got to be driven by demand. It grows from the ground up in the economy. And so I think the the big error that has uh, affected the the whole developed world, the U.S. and the European system primarily, is to neglect demand-side stimulus in favor of monetary stimulus. Governments need to spend. They need to repair the ability of households to spend and need income policies, I think, that do that. Uh, but they also need to spend themselves. And they haven't done enough of that. They started in the U.S. We had a fiscal stimulus in 2009 that was having an effect, but then it came to an end, and we've had stagnation uh, since then. That, I think, is one of the main lessons. And I think the more people understand the banking system and how it works and get out of these sort of ridiculous pictures of the Fed as, as sort of dropping money into the economy via a helicopter, they'll understand that the, the central bank cannot drive domestic demand. They can't create demand. There are a whole bunch of people in the monetarist camp who are convinced that they can. They think that all the central bank has to do is QE or other similar operations, and they will create demand in the economy. And that just does not happen. And if they understood the mechanisms properly, I don't think they would think it would happen. Now they've gotten kind of desperate. Some of the people in the monetarist camp will say, well, now the Fed has to just start buying anything, you know, not just financial assets, but they should buy people's old socks, whatever, (laughs) and call those assets but there are real constitutional and, and political issues there. I think in all of our democratic systems, we understand that the, the power to spend is supposed to lie with the legislatures, with the, the elected branches of government. And we don't want central banks suddenly taking over the function of making real purchases in the economy. Do you want the central bank to buy jet fighters from defense contractors to stimulate the economy? No, and socks are just a kind of smaller example of that. So what we really need is more fiscal stimulus. We need the government to do the spending that is currently frozen because firms don't have confidence in the growth of the economy. They don't see where the growth is going to come from. They aren't able to coordinate their activities to drive growth with long-term investments. They tend to just respond to uh, signals that are coming from somewhere else. So the government really needs to lead there and they need to stop relying on central banks to do all this work and move things back to their legislatures and become more proactive.
1: So instead of Helicopter Ben dropping money, we should have the government doing that kind of a role through fiscal activity.
2: That's right. You know, unfortunately, in the U.S. and and I know in Europe as well, people are terrified now by sovereign debt. Uh, They have a little more justification for it in Europe than in the U.S. But as a result, we're doing exactly the opposite thing. We, We have an ongoing budgetary debates in the U.S. where both sides of the spectrum are convinced they should be contracting the deficit, taxing more and spending less. And unfortunately, that's exactly the opposite of what they should be doing. By taxing more and spending less, they are draining money from the economy, the the kinds of assets that people can spend and use to buy things. And that is just going to suppress demand even further. We really should be running very healthy deficits at this point, which expand the ability of people to spend, let them hang on to their revenues rather than their incomes instead of sending them to government in the form of taxes, uh, get them more money by getting uh, the government to purchase things. That will drive demand from the bottom up. And then you get the bank lending. If banks have customers who've got money to spend and are using that money to do some of their own investment to fund some of their additional consumption, firms will respond to that. I work in the book industry. If uh, people had more money to buy books, they would be coming into bookstores and saying, hey, I want more books. And the people in the book industry would say, hey, we need to produce more books. And they would go to their banks and say, "Uh, we're expecting an increase of uh, sales of 5% or 7% this year. We need a loan. And the banks would then loan because they know what they're financing is something that's actually going to happen.
1: So we need some kind of essentially like a wartime government reaction without the war.
2: Yeah, that I wrote about that recently. That's a kind of a bigger and more ambitious way of looking at it. I think we need something like that. The U.S. economy during the uh, Second World War doubled in size. That's what finally killed the Great Depression, at least in the U.S., and it was because governments ran large deficits. They were obviously spending like crazy to build roads, ports, factories, warehouses, weapons, all of that stuff. Now, we don't need uh, more of that. We hopefully will not get a round of military Keynesianism. But if people could understand that a war effort of that kind directed into other places would have the same dramatic effect on the economy, they might be more willing to do it. Imagine that if we, instead of fighting a war against uh, Nazis or the Japanese Empire, we fought a war against the destruction of the environment a war for new forms of energy, put the same kind of national commitment, uh, not just national, global, I think this is something throughout the developed world we have a strong need for, then government could invest in that. And I think we would get the same kind of dramatic growth and leap forward in progress that we had ultimately stimulated by the Second World War. We could do the same thing. It's a huge tragedy in Europe that there's a generation of young people across Europe you know, the young people are always eager, anxious to build their future, full of energy, full of hope, and governments are choosing to leave them unemployed and to give them no hope. All of those people are a kind of army for progress that is not being employed and employing them would not just build the future, but it would give them incomes, it would give them some confidence, give them the ability to start a family and start their lives and and get on with things. And right now that's not happening and it just breaks my heart when I see what's happening, at least in some of the countries in Europe, you know, other countries are doing decently, but throughout the periphery countries in Ireland and Spain and Portugal and Greece and Italy, there's so much stagnation and so much uh, youth unemployment.
1: Well, thanks very much, Dan, for coming on the show today.
2: I really enjoyed it and appreciate you inviting me.
0: Across the evening sky. All the birds are leaving.
1: On this episode you heard the theme tune The Order of the Pharaonic Jesters. By Sunra and his orchestra, and Sade with Smooth Operator. You also heard Emma Kirby singing Oh Who Can Tell from Handel's Joshua, and you are now listening to Fairport Convention, wondering who knows where the time goes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you join me for the next episode of From Alpha to Omega.